0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. It's the day before Thanksgiving. I know that all of you are really not going to feel complete unless I wedge another one of these podcasts in before the day when we do terrible things to ourselves with calories and and charred flesh of different various animals. Uh, I am sitting here rocking a brand new iPhone 12. It came in the mail today, uh, replacing my 11. I can tell you a couple of things right off the bat uh, and being Apple, I'm not surprised. I'm not hating on Apple. I'm just, I'm just puzzled. Uh, definitely the reception on the 12 is not as good as the reception on the 11. So at my house with the same cell service, I have less of a signal on the 12 than I did on the 11. It's not really a problem cause I still have enough to get done what I need to get done. But the iPhone 12 is 5g and I have 5g T-Mobile. I had a full 5G T-Mobile signal downtown Santa Fe, but about a mile from my house, I lost the whole thing and I'm back to 4G LTE, which is fine. Again, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I'm curious to see how good 5G is when I get out there. But but I don't want to get ahead of myself. You know, Thanksgiving is coming. We're all excited. And uh I've got a whole I've got 12 points I want to go over, and I've got our standards here in the front, which I always do, which is who is this for? Who's our hero of the week? I have a new thing called Scum of the Week. And then the question of the week, and then I'm going to hit you with 12 points. And I think they're, they're decent. I would give it a C plus uh, this week. And uh, some are good, some are bad, and who cares? Because there's only four people listening to this. Okay, so who is this podcast for? I get asked that a lot. You have a podcast, really? Oh, wow, you're so cool as it is and so uh, inspiring as a human being. I hear that all the time in my own mind. Uh, and people say, well, who's your podcast for? What's it for? And so every week I give you an example of people who I think would fit in fine here. And it's for anyone whose family worked as extras in the film Deliverance. And um, if you haven't seen Deliverance from the 1970s, Burt Reynolds, that's reason enough right there. He's a man-god. He's a god in human form walking the earth. Is he still alive? I think he's still alive. He might not be, but um, he should be. And if he isn't, he probably still is. But if you haven't seen Deliverance, it is a... Terrifying picture. Uh, I'm, I know why my parents would not let me see it when I was in elementary school because I would have never seen the world in the same way. And I just have one question when it comes to deliverance, and it's for Ned Beatty. Why? Why, for the love of God, Ned Beatty, when you read the script, did you accept that role? Because I can't see you without seeing that role. And for anyone who's seen deliverance, You know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, well, then you got a nice little surprise in store for you. Okay, moving on. Our hero of the week. I've been thinking about this for a while now because there's a part of this that chaps my ass, and I need to get it off my chest. And our hero of the week are military veterans. But let me narrow this down. I'm I'm speaking specific. I was first of all. Let me just preface this. I was never in the service. My father was not in the service. My grandfather was not in the service. Nobody that I know in my family served in the military. My father tried and flamed out in epic proportion in a way that only my father could do. I'll give you a little little history here. My father had a vision of himself that was somewhere between Burt Reynolds and and uh, John Wayne. My father in the 70s and 80s looked like Burt Reynolds, dressed like Burt Reynolds, had the same porn stash that Burt Reynolds had, right? So my dad was that way. But when he was younger, he had this vision of himself, and his parents were terrible to him. My my grandparents on my father's side were disciplinarians, and they treated my father like crap. They never respected him. And my dad was really successful, and he wasn't the smartest guy in the room. He worked his ass off, and he was driven. So, my dad's idea was to join the military. And so he was living in Indiana. He had almost no money. He had a piece of shit car and he had a girlfriend. So, he he basically breaks up with his girlfriend. He takes all the money that he has and uses it to go on a ski vacation to a ski mountain in Indiana. For those of you outside of the country, just know that is virtually impossible. I was born in Indiana, and I never saw a hill large enough to ski the entire time I was there. So it had to be a horrible place. And then he abandons his car, just like the guys in Stripes, the movie, if you've seen that. You'll know Harold Ramis and uh, and Bill, Bill Murray abandon their car in front of the recruitment center. And that's what my father did. And then he per- proceeds to go in, and they take one look at him physically, and they're like, there's no way in hell we're letting you in. His knees were so bad, they booted him. So my father gets kicked out of the recruitment center with no car, no job, no money, no girlfriend. Okay, So that kind of set the tone. So a lot of people join the military for a lot of different reasons, but there's one subset that I'm very curious about. And these are the people who had no choice, and they signed up because they really didn't have other choices in their life. So it's not, the, it's not the veteran who signed up and said, man, I'm going home and to join the military. Those people are fine. They're great. And then there's, you know, people join for whatever reason, but the the ones who have their backs against the wall, who end up going into the service and proving themselves and doing their job and doing what we as a nation ask of, of them. And the part of this that chaps my ass is there's a lot of snowflakes out there now who want everything to be perfect and want the world to be this perfect place that it's not and never has been and never will be. And they're anti-military or they're anti-service. I, I don't really have a stance on it because, again, I never served, So I can't speak to you as someone who's in the military and said, it's this way or that way, or I learned this or this happened to me. I can't do that. I wasn't there. So, But those folks who went in with no choice, who did what, they, what was asked of them and survived and came out, that's my hero of the week. And I've met these people all through my life, Various times, various places, and I've never really formally acknowledged these people, and I just thought now would be a good time because we just passed Veterans Day, and I reached out to someone I know who was in the military and served uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I reached out to him and you know, just said, hey, uh, just checking in, seeing what's going on, because a lot of these folks are not in a good situation right now. Um, it's really hard. And if you look at the suicide numbers in the military and returning troops, it's not good. It's at epidemic proportions. And so if you know a veteran, reach out and say something, reach out and say, Hey, do you want to hang out? You want to talk? You want to have Thanksgiving distanced with a mask behind Plexi in a bubble. Okay. Scum of the week. This is a new category to start before we get to the points. Scum of the week, because it's just so easy. And scum is a word that I really learned to appreciate through the writings of one Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Thompson used the word scum in the most magical of ways. He, it, grim is another word that he used a lot that I really like as well. I think grim is a great word. And he often applied these to Millhouse. He applied these to one Richard Tricky Dicky Nixon. And uh scum of the week is this week is the entire Republican party because I was going to narrow it down but I can't because it's amazing what has happened to the party and the, and again I'm not like some lover of the Democratic Party uh I'm not a lover of of the American political system that's the problem yes I voted democratic in this election but please look at the options And the last four years, I felt like, once again, I had no choice. It was very apparent to me who I was going to vote for the second that that Donnie got elected and the destruction began. But the Republican Party had such an opportunity here, and they still do. Believe it or not, they still have an opportunity to do the right thing. And every single day, they continue to go in the other direction. And I guess the word I would use for the Republican Party, which is odd because— most of the rah-rah people that I know in terms of politics and sort of machismo are on the right. The word I would use is gutless. You you, you are afraid of Donald Trump. I mean, he's just an odd, odd, odd dude. He's odd. I'm not f- afraid of him at all. Put me in the octagon with Donald Trump right now and put every penny you have on me because I will destroy him in the ring. I'm not afraid of him. And I for the life of me, um, I, I'm starting to understand a little bit as to why the Republicans are terrified, and I'll get I'll get to that a little bit later. But anyway, my scum of the week is the Republican Party. And again, this is not a permanent label. It just happens to be right now. They they're lost. And uh and hopefully as a nation we can come together and sort of help craft a new Republican Party, just like we will have to craft a new Democratic Party. And thankfully, or hopefully I should say At some point, maybe we actually mature enough to get a third party. How about that? Wow. We could take an example from literally the rest of the world. Let's have a third party. Maybe it's the Dan party. I don't know. Whatever we want to name it, the name is still open. I don't think you can get the URL. I think dan.com is taken. Uh, It's not me. Okay, question of the week. This is a good one because I got a little data here uh, that's a little sobering. And The question of the week is, are you prepared... If you were to lose power for an extended period of time, think about that. Are you prepared? Now, I don't know how many preppers are listening to my podcast. There's probably one or two, right? People who are definitely prepping for Armageddon out there. You could probably say, yeah, I'm ready for this question. But the rest of us, it's probably a glaring no. And the reason I'm bringing this up and asking this question is that I just finished my 60th book of the year, which, is, which I'm going to do a blog post about here in the near future. Uh, it's called, The book was called Sandworm by Andy Greenberg, and Andy Greenberg is a tech writer for Wired, and he's a real journalist. He's got chops. He's a geek, right, because anyone who writes a book about computer hacking and cybersecurity is a geek in, in the best use of the word. And this book is fascinating because it breaks down several of the different Kremlin-backed hacking groups and some of their exploits around the world. And this stuff all happened in the last three to five years and was major, major, major stories, but never really got the play. And also, I've never had a conversation with anyone about these topics, which is when you learn about what happened, it's absolutely astounding that this has not been dinner table conversation since 2016, 2015, really. And one of the things that we realized, in addition to the the Russians hacking the DNC server and giving Hillary's emails and Podesta's emails and hacking the election in 2016 and helping Donald Trump get elected, all of those things we know, which are now kind of been brushed under the rug because the last four years have been so chaotic and and nightmarish that all of these things get get forgotten. Remember the Panama Papers? Remember the Paradise Papers? All that stuff that it seems like old news now. That should still be front-page news every single day, and it's not, because there's so much chaos and drama in the world. But a couple of things that came out of this book that were mind-blowing. The Russians are in the power grid. So the Russians have hacked into the power grid all over the world. Now, they did it initially in Ukraine, because Putin, who's a sociopath, decided that he was going to take Ukraine, because he considers it part of Russia, and they invaded in 2014. And so what they immediately did was unleash their hacking core on Ukraine. And, you know, they attacked the media. They attacked all the infrastructure, including the power grids. And here's the crazy part. One of the things that helped Ukraine was that they're not fully automated. They still have one foot in the analog world. So they were able to go back and, like, literally flick giant levers and turn things back on. Whereas here, we don't have that. We're fully automated. And so the Russians are in our power grid as well, but they haven't turned it on yet. They haven't attacked yet. And the book brings up all these things that are very interesting about warfare, modern warfare, cyber warfare, and who's considered fair game. Is it is it considered fair game to attack civilians and turn power off for a month? And so Ukraine got hit really hard, but one of these worms that the Russians created took off and it the genie got out of the bottle, so to speak, which is the same thing that happened to our cyber weapon called Stuxnet, which we send into Iran to, to basically destroy their uh, uranium enrichment program. And that happened, and then Stuxnet got out of the, the bottle as well and, and jumped out and is in computers all over the world. But one of the stats in the book that really blew me away was when this NotPetya worm was sent out by this Russian hacker group. In one company alone, it destroyed 15,000 PCs— in 90 seconds. It was that fast. And when I say destroy PCs, they're done. It's not like you turn it on and turn it off and reboot it or pl- or unplug it and plug it back in and reboot it. It's done. 15,000 computers in 90 seconds. They hit Maersk, the shipping company, they hit the South Korean Olympic Committee they hit transportations. They hit hospitals all over, the, all over the world, including here in the U.S. They shut hospitals down for three days. They had no patient records. They didn't have data for surgery. They had to close certain hospitals for three days and transfer patients, literally like emergency room patients patients being transferred. Um, it, it is fascinating and mind-blowing. And I realized I can answer my own question. No, I'm not ready for a month without power, especially because it was 20 degrees this morning and the high today was 43. Yes, I have firewood. Yes, I have a fireplace. Yes, I have small propane canisters that I can run off a Mr. Buddy heater, but my wife and I would have to section off our house and stay in one room. Uh, it would be a challenge. Like SoCal, if I was still living there, it's not that cold. You know, you could get away with it. But places like this with no power for a month, oh, yeah, it makes you start thinking about maybe getting a prepper. Maybe, maybe not becoming a prepper. Why not just buy, buy a prepper? I'm sure there's a prepper out there that's lonely that you could buy, put him in a bubble, take him home, and he could prep for you. I don't know. Just a thought. Think about it. All right, let's move on. One quick thing before we get to the first point. I need to give you a little Thanksgiving advice, and I know I should be charging for this because um, I've given you all kinds of good advice lately. I told you how to ruin holiday photos, and hopefully many of you have been practicing those techniques lately because now we're going really into the season where you can screw things up for your family. But Thanksgiving advice number one is tonight, take your belt out of your pants, right? It's not going to serve you any purpose tomorrow. The belt will only confine things that will not want to be confined by this time tomorrow. So take your belt off. And if you're gutsy like me, just take your pants off now. Because tomorrow, again, you're going to be, I don't know, you're going to be putting things into the pants that don't want to be in the pants. And by the time the dinner and the food and the consumption is over... It's at that point it can be incredibly difficult to even bend over far enough to get your pants off. So this is called a preemptive strike. Get your belt off, get your pants off now, and don't even put them on tomorrow. Put your socks on, maybe put on some short shorts, and um, and some keep keep your top warm. You want your core warm so that you have maximum caloric burning capability. That's important. You know, gloves, a hat. A vest, you don't need sleeves, but you want that core warm, and from the waist down, you want the least amount of constriction that you can possibly get. You're welcome. Point number one, I want to talk about chess and photographers. Uh, There is a program on Netflix, a series right now called The Queen's Gambit. You've probably heard of it because it's been getting unbelievable press over the past couple of weeks. It is a wonderful series. Sitting in front of me on the table right now is a chessboard that's always in front of me. The the chess pieces that I have date back to my childhood, which I believe date back to my mother's childhood. This chess board and these pieces have been in my family forever. I have sucked at chess for decades, right? I play fast, I play by feel, and I play by patterns on the board. It's hard to explain. I have beaten some pretty highly ranked algorithms online, but I've also been destroyed online 10,000 times, and I've lost to master-level chess players in a matter of seconds. So don't go thinking, I know what I'm doing with chess. I like chess because it makes me think. And if I'm going to waste time online, I would waste it. I like wasting it playing chess as opposed to like surfing the, the web or doing something stupid, like looking at my own YouTube channel to drive up views, which I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I would ever do that, but, um, you know, it's possible. So I, there's a couple of things. Bobby Fischer is considered by many to be the best chess player to ever walk the face of the earth. And if you read about Bobby Fischer, Bobby Fischer's life and his, his exit from the chess world uh, did not go well, to put it mildly. The train came off in a major, major way. Um, and that is a fascinating story in itself. Not only how good he was from a young age and the matches he won, and also the geopolitical climate that he played in during the Cold War, You know, do, basically being unable to travel to certain countries and playing through... Someone over the phone that was moving pieces on the board in these countries that he was not allowed to play in. Bobby Fischer's story in itself is is um, is incredible, and Fischer liked to crush people, right? That was like part of the plan. Well, if you fast forward to today, the best player in the world today is a guy named Magnus Carlsen, who's a Danish player, and Denmark, don't don't go letting that go to your head, right? You lucked out getting him, right? There's nothing like it wasn't like Denmark created him. He's just this fluke, and he happens to be from Denmark. So don't get cocky, because we will invade you in two seconds, right? Okay, because you have like eight guys in the military total. That's your entire military is eight people. But anyway, Magnus Carlsen loves—and there's a great documentaries about him. He's a very interesting dude. He likes to crush people when he's playing chess. He wants to look across the board and see you die— slowly from the inside out. That is a part of it, and he's admitted that and spoken about that many times in interviews. I find that fascinating, and I have absolutely no problem with that. But it got me thinking about chess and photographers, and chess, and in particular, portrait photographers. And if you go back through history at some of the best portrait photographers ever, who are absolutely legends, who I'm not going to name, but they have influenced literally generation after generation of photographers, They were exactly the same way. They tortured their subjects. And let me repeat that for those of you new to photography or you snowflakes that think we live in this perfect world. They tortured their subjects. And when their subjects broke is when they made their photographs. And they made their entire career off of doing this. For decades, they tortured the people in front of their lens. And they were master manipulators and they broke people down and they were like water looking for a crack in a dam. They found something and they exploited it until their subject broke and they were boom, they were good, they were there and ready and they did it over and over and over. And that's not a popular thing to say in public because everyone wants everything to be perfect now, right? Oh, the snowflake mentality about the world. It's a joke. I have absolutely no no problem with photographers doing this because here's the interesting part in my mind. These people were so good and so famous, these photographers, that they supported literally hundreds, if not thousands of people around the world who were tied to these photographers and their productions and their books and their exhibitions, their assistants, their agents, how many people fed off of these photographers and they just so happened to be the ones that had that Magnus Carlson, Bobby Fisher mentality of, yeah, I'm gonna beat you, but I'm gonna torture you in the process. And I think it's a fascinating thing to think about. I have no illusion that the world is a smooth and perfect and friendly place. I don't think it ever has been. I think human nature is dark as well as light. And I think all of us have a darkness inside of us that we some, some contain it and it's never seen, and others thrive in that darkness. And so I think it's an interesting thing to, thing to think about where, sure, that's kind of a jerk move to break someone down before you're photographing them, but there's this positive residue on the other side, and I think it's impossible to, to separate them. And I just wanted to throw that out there because I think it's an interesting point, and it's my damn podcast. Point number two. I got to give a Blurb update. Um, blurb, for those of you who don't know, is the company that I work for, and I've worked for Blurb for about eleven years, which in the tech world is unheard of. Like I'm the be- I'm the uncle that just will not go away. I've been institutionalized into the Blurb asylum, and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon unless they pry it out of my cold dead hands. So. Blurb has been on fire in fuego as of late. And you may or may not have known this because if you're not on the email list or not at things like Adobe max or whatever, you may not know, but I got to tip my hat to the, to the teams right now, because what they've been able to pull off recently is pretty interesting. And, and it's across the board from like high level stuff to low level stuff. So there's three things I want to mention. Number one, We have new papers for LayFlat, and these are Mohawk papers. Mohawk, if you don't know, is this remarkable paper company. They've been around forever, and their papers are beautiful, archival, high-end, gorgeous stuff. Well, we have two new papers in the LayFlat format that are using Mohawk. So if you're into LayFlat, it's something to definitely check out. Uh, Adding a new trim adding a new paper, adding anything new to a platform like Blurb is a monumental global undertaking. And you have to realize there are hundreds of people involved to get something like this done. That's no exaggeration. And it is hard. People, photographers will reach out to me all the time. Hey, you should have Blurb add this, this, and that. And I'm like, okay, we'll think about that on a global scale and get back to me. Not easy. So we added Mohawk Papers, which is cool. And then on the Blurb software, which is called BookWrite, we added uh, a quick start, Option and uh, template, new templates. And the templates are actually good looking templates. You may love templates, you may hate them. They're good starting points, but at least these are templates that you go, okay, that looks like a legitimate publication and a legitimate starting point. That's kind of cool. And then the quick start is for a lot of people who just get overwhelmed and go, I don't know how to do this, I don't know where to start. You can just literally hit a couple of buttons and get a jump start on how to make a publication. And that's a pretty cool addition that we've been talking about for a long time. So kudos to the team for bringing that. And the last thing, believe it or not, is Blurb has a really cool association with Adobe, right? We're inside of Lightroom. We're in the book module in Lightroom. That's rare. We're the only people in there. Uh, We are also, uh, we have a plugin for Adobe InDesign, which is a badass plugin that even I can use, which tells you how good it is if an idiot like me can use it. Now we actually have a plug-in inside of Photoshop for making wall art. So you can be inside of Photoshop, tweak your file, go to the plug-in for wall art, and boom, your image outloads to blurb for a print on, on metal, acrylic, or canvas, which is pretty damn cool that we're in three of the major Adobe programs. That's like, And again, think about the, the, the teamwork and what happens behind the scenes for those kind of integrations to happen, and all of those happened in a month which is during a pandemic. It's crazy. I just want to give a blurb update. Kind of cool. All right, for you camera geeks out there, we're moving on to point number three because I know you're salivating right now. Uh, And hopefully your pants are still on. I don't want to hear anyone about their pants off while I'm talking about camera reviews. That's a bit creepy, even for me. So I I got a Fuji X-T4. I've been using the X-T2s forever. I love them. Great cameras, tiny, Simple, reliable, the best menu, best menus and like ergonomics of any camera out there. I do love my Sony XV1, the, the, uh, my vlogging camera. I use that all the time now. But I got this X-T4, right? And I was able to get in the field for two days and using this thing. And so I'm going to do what everybody on YouTube loves to do, right? Which is you get something new. And you do a review eight minutes later. And you're like, I just got this camera. I'm going to do a review. I've never used it. I've wandered around in a park and shot my feet. But, um, and now I'm going to go through the menus, right? This happens with computer. This Apple M1 MacBook Pro that came out, the Air, the, the Mini. Two days later, people were doing reviews. And I'm like, what the hell could you have possibly done in that time to really test it out? So this is not a full capability review of the X-T4. There's several things <clears throat> I need to say. Number one, the autofocus is exponentially beyond the X-T2. So I'm sure the f- autofocus in the X-T3 was great because the X-T4 is way, way better. Secondarily, uh, what else is better about this thing? The, it has two card slots. That's nice. The battery. Battery is way better. Also, so that's point number two, is the battery is far superior to the batteries on the X-T2. The point number one was the autofocus is way better. The third thing is that there's a toggle switch on top of the camera that goes from stills to motion in one flick of a button. And then you keep your settings for each of those set so that all you have to do is go flick, 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 and you go back and forth, which I did repeatedly over the two days. This was the first two days. (coughs) Sorry, I'm choking up. Those were the first two days I've had in the field in a long time. Now, I typically photograph people. I do people-based documentary projects, but this was not people-based at all. I can't because we're in a bubble. So what I was shooting was very, very low percentage, lots and lots and lots of waiting. I would shoot for literally 10 seconds and then wait for two and a half, three hours, and then shoot for 10 seconds and wait two and a half, three hours, not knowing what was happening, what was coming. Long story, I'm not going to explain it, and I'm not going to share this story with you until I'm completely done one of the coolest, best stories I've ever done, but very low percentage. Uh, the grip is super nice on the X-T4. I think the finder is about the same from what I can tell. Um, there is one thing about the X-T4 that I do not like, and I understand it, but I don't like it, and that's the shutter, the shutter release. It's because the camera has IBIS, okay, so let me, let me just recap this. Point one: better autofocus. Point number two is better battery. Point number three is the toggle switch on the top is awesome. Point number four should be the fact that the IBIS in the body combined with the IBIS in the lens, which is the 16 to 80 f4, is unbelievably steady and stable. I can literally hand-hold this thing. I can pan with it. It's fantastic because I've now got a camera that I can hand-hold, that I can snap and shoot stills with. Um, And that combination is fantastic. I would assume that my X-T4 will become my number one primary content producing camera. However... The X-T2 with the with the 50 millimeter Speedmaster is not going away. That is still my single favorite combination. And if it wasn't such a pain in the ass to put a manual lens on the camera and then have to go into all the settings in the menus to, to use a mechanical lens, I would put it on and off of the X-T4. But frankly, with digital cameras, I do not like to change lenses because they get dust on the sensor so easily, especially when you live in a place like New Mexico and especially when you're doing projects in the wild like I am, I do not take my lenses off, because otherwise you end up spotting everything because the sensors get so bad. The The shutter, the one thing about the X-T4 I do not like is the shutter is odd. Because the camera has IBIS, the shutter almost feels like it is a two-phase shutter. So when you're pressing down on the shutter release on the X-T2, the second you hit it, it activates the camera. But with this camera, with the 4, the second you hit it, it does nothing. And then you have to press, and you press and get to like what I would call a first level or first phase of depression. Then it activates the camera, and then the second phase triggers the shutter release. But the problem is it's very, very, very close, and it's like a hair trigger. So just getting the camera started up, sometimes you accidentally go too far and you trip the shutter and it's this weird like two-stage shutter and i think it's because of the ibis where they you want the camera to to start and then it kicks on the ibis and then you shoot so i i kind of understand it but i think they have to make that better because i shot a bunch of frames i didn't want to shoot <clears throat> because i just pressed too hard and when things are happening really fast, and this is where these reviews on YouTube are maddening because 99% of these photographers don't actually make pictures. They just review camera after camera after camera. And when you're walking around in a park or you're walking around on some street in Hong Kong shooting random buildings, you it wouldn't matter what the shutter release is like. But when I'm shooting 10 seconds of absolute hair-raising, high-adrenaline, high-energy moments— and then waiting for three and a half hours and then having ten seconds of absolute insanity. You have to be on. Everything has to work perfectly or it doesn't work at all. And so it's I think they could smooth it out. It's not like I'm gonna send the camera back or anything. And hell, I'd buy a second one if I if I could, because I would probably just give the XT2s to my wife and take the XT fours and and you know go from there which I might do at some point anyway. But anyway, it's a damn good camera. And if you're thinking about it or on the fence, I would definitely pull the trigger. Do it. Okay, port number four is, a, is road trip. So I just came back from a 3,000 mile road trip. And yes, we were incredibly safe and we sequestered ourselves and we were in a bubble the whole time. It's doable, especially because I have a van, we have a van, the van is the only way to go. Um, I saw more vans on this trip than you could possibly imagine. The word is out. Everybody's buying vans, and you and you should because it's it's just the only way to do it, especially when you're in environments where it could be pouring rain one day. Two, two, uh, two and a half days of the trip, absolute pouring rain, and I'm inside doing conference calls for Blurb in the middle of the van, and people are like, hey, it looks like you're in a van. And I'm like, well, that's because I'm in a van. Uh, and then you get to where you're going, and like one day I got up, and the van was covered in ice. And I'm inside making coffee. I'm out flying the drone. I'm freezing my absolute my my peaches off. And then I could jump back in the van with a little heater, and I was okay. If you're driving even even a truck with a rooftop tent, nightmare. That the whole thing is a nightmare of what I just did. I wouldn't even go on the trip if I if I had to put a rooftop tent up and down, unless it was one of those hard shell built onto the top of my Jeep kind of things that just pops up and goes right back down. But these people, I saw tons and tons of people with rooftop tents that are the rooftop tents where you have to take the cover off and then put the tent up and then put the tent back down and put the cover on. And in a pouring rain, um, that sucks. But two, there's no real place to work inside. But here, you know, look, the truth is a badass truck with four wheel drive. Yeah. Okay. That's a cool thing. And you're going to go a lot of places that I can't. Having said that, I got the van down a road that I got down there and every single other vehicle on the road was a fully, fully, fully kitted out overlanding vehicle that would come down this road and look over and see our two-wheel drive van and you could just see the look of dejection on their face. Like, okay, I probably didn't need a front axle breather on my overlanding vehicle to get down this road because there's some clown in a two-wheel drive Dodge van with a low rear axle, that's looking like he got here just fine. So it was great. Uh, I did not shower for five days in a row. Let me repeat that. I did not shower for five days in a row. And you know what? I loved it. And I could have kept going. I got home from the trip after having not showered in five days. And now I could have. I, had a, I have a portable shower in my van that I forgot to fill up. So if I would have had it, I probably would have taken a shower because we got lucky and and where I was going, we got one day of like 75 degree weather with no wind. It would have been the perfect day to take a shower, but like an idiot, I forgot to fill up the shower and I didn't want to use all my drinking water. So I went five days with no shower. I loved it. When I got home, I was like, "I, I don't think I'm going to shower ever again. And my wife was like, you are a filthy swine. You smell like the end of the world. You smell like the inside of a fake leg get in there and take a shower. So I did. And now I'm kind of glad I did. Um, I felt like at one point I had a second skin, which is kind of creepy, but, uh, it's truthful. Okay. As we speak, there is a new laptop on the way to my house from blurb to me. So it's not mine, it's theirs, but I'm going to use it because I'm still using a almost six year old laptop and it is not happy. There is a new one coming, a MacBook Pro. I do not think it is the new M1 because I think they shipped this to me before the M1s were even available. So I think I'm getting the latest generation, the last generation MacBook Pro Intel 13-inch. 13, 13 it, it com- it's coming with 400 dongles because I need at least 400 dongles to get to use what I need on a daily basis to get this new MacBook to work. Um, And by the way, the M1 chip for you snowflakes out there, I hear you. Now that the socialists are here, we're all going to have to make kombucha because Biden and Harris and their communist friends are going to force us all into making kombucha on a daily basis. The M1, by the way, is also the same moniker of the Abrams M1 tank, a weapon of war. So you snowflakes out there, if any of you snowflakes buy an M1 Apple product— Whether it's an iPad, not an iPad, yeah, an iPad, a MacBook Pro, a MacBook Air, or the new Mac Mini, if you buy that, just know that you're supporting the war because it's also the moniker for the Abrams M1 tank. Just wanted you to know, snowflakes, because you can't have it both ways. But anyway, I wish I had the new M1 because I love the M1 tank. Not that I've ever driven one, but it looks cool. And I'm sure I would have no problem getting it down the overlanding routes. But um, I'm getting a new one, and it's, I'm, I'm curious to see how this new thing works, this new laptop. I did also order a new mechanical keyboard. One thing about the Apple laptops, and I write a ton for myself and for Blurb, um, is I do not like the Apple keyboards at all. I never have. I've never liked the travel on the keys. And my wife is unfortunately the owner of one of their butterfly keyboard laptops, which is already broken twice I cannot believe that people are, you know, let Apple off the hook for making those things because they just kept getting returned over and over and over again. Her laptop is horrible. I would I would have sent that back 2 seconds after buying it because I can't type on it. I'm hoping the new one that I'm getting is better, but I, ha- I bought a mechanical keyboard because I love the sound and the action of a mechanical keyboard and I spend every day all day long in front of it. What else did I buy? Oh, I bought a new Logitech mouse that has right left click and also a thumb wheel that scrolls horizontally, which I really like now that I'm doing video because I'm always going through the timeline back and forth. So I think that'll be interesting. And a mouse is much more, it's much healthier on your arm and your tendons and your shoulder and your wrist and your elbow than using the trackpad. Everybody that I know that uses extensive trackpad is either having major arm problems, shoulder problems, or has had surgery on their hands or elbows it's a walking wounded. If you go into San Francisco to these tech companies and you look around, uh, it is the walking wounded of people using trackpads. My wife's having shoulder problems and I know that it's tied to extensive use of the trackpad. So I have a mouse and um, the Logitech mouse should be coming as well. So I have new laptop, new keyboard and new mouse. I'm excited. I have so much computer time ahead of me over the next few months and filmmaking time that I figured it was worth doing. That's kind of interesting. Okay, point number six. I'm back in New Mexico, and we are in full lockdown thanks to Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's our governor, who's a badass. What I like about her is that she speaks like a normal human being. She does not speak like a politician. She was director of health before she was governor, and now Biden is eyeing her for potential for secretary of health because she's got some chops and some track records. Now, the crazy repubs here in the state were trying to impeach her because they're insane and, and they're so radicalized politically that that's the only thing they knew how to do. And they're saying, oh, she hates small businesses and you're putting out. Well, the problem is that we're up 128% in terms of the coronavirus. We've had record high numbers of infections and record high deaths over the last week. And we are a poor state with very few, inf- very little infrastructure and and few hospitals. And so places like... like uh, Clovis, New Mexico, or, which is down south, southeast, they are having major problems with um, ICU beds and uh, equipment and ventilators and things like that. So we're in trouble, but we are trying to do what we can. Um, we have to learn from places like Asia, right? Asia, are, the, the cultures in Asia have been wearing masks forever. That's just a part of their culture. That's why they've had such, one of the reasons, why they've had such great containment with corona, not perfect, but much better than us. And I think um, hopefully New Mexico can be, uh, can be a, a beacon for how to, how to handle things. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could be. Now, when I was returning, one of the batshit crazy things that I saw was on the overpasses between Albuquerque and Santa Fe were giant trailers with banners on the sides saying, Cowboys for Trump. And then standing there were, were families of, of rural folks, cowboy types, farmers, ranchers, etc., wearing black cowboy hats and st- waving banners and flags for cowboys for Trump. That is absolutely freaking mystifying to me. Having grown up at least in part on a ranch in Wyoming, my father was a Republican, my father's ranch partner's a Republican for sure, that makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And for these folks to still think that Trump— is going to win or somehow get a second term or that the entire thing was uh was rigged is absolutely baffling and it's I don't want to say it's sad because they have a right to to voice their opinion and be out there but man, how, how did we fall this far? Because I love cowboy people. I love country folks. I love ranchers and farmers. I think ranching and farming is one of the most misunderstood aspects of our entire culture and society. Less than 2% of Americans are involved in ranching and farming, and yet all of us benefit from what they do. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity there to close this gap, this knowledge gap between city folks and rural folks but man, we got to get away from this political radicalization because it doesn't, ha- it doesn't help anyone. And speaking of masks, I'm going to throw this out there. I just bought something called a leaf mask. And a leaf mask is a plastic mask that fits over your face like a regular cloth mask or a surgical mask. Um, and it has a metal aluminum ring around the top that you can conform to your face. It's clear so that you can see the person's face through the mask. And then in the bottom are replaceable HEPA-100 cartridges and these are these are badass like not an N95 not an N97 it's an N100 and they're replaceable cartridges and this thing has a dual band one band goes around the top of your head one around the bottom i don't give a shit how it looks i don't care if people think i'm overreacting but if i have to get on a plane or i have to go in public i'm wearing this thing because It looks amazing. And I don't know if you guys know about this mask, if you have one, if you thought about it, if you got one and hated it, whatever it is, if you know about them, let me know because I don't know anyone else that has one. I got a link from someone who's pretty attuned to all kinds of things pandemic. Um, They've been talking about a pandemic happening for decades and we're way ahead of anybody else I know in terms of data and what was actually going to happen when this hit. And they were the one that sent me the link and said, hey, this would be a mask to consider. So I thought, yeah, I'll get it. It was six sixty bucks, six zero, which I know is expensive, but when you do the research about masks and you realize that the cloth masks aren't doing a whole hell of a lot. And my masks, my cloth masks have inserts for little N97 filters that I've cut out and put in, but still not so good. So I figured, you know what? I'm gonna try this. And if I look like a cyborg, who cares? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Okay. One thing I noticed is point number seven. One thing I noticed on this trip is the development happening in the American West. Um, It is happening so rapidly, it is hard to comprehend. I've been driving the I-40 interstate for 14 years from Southern California to to Northern New Mexico. And this trip, I was Northern California to Northern New Mexico. I spent a lot of time on the I-40. The development is terrifying how fast things are being developed. We're not talking about the random gas station in the middle of nowhere, which is happening. But now it's happening when the random gas station ha- now has 50 pumps, and you can see it from outer space. And there's 50 pumps and a massive area of concrete lighting. It's just an eyesore on the, on the, on the horizon that you can see for 40 miles before you get there. That's happening. But the, sub- the suburbs and the sprawl out from even towns like Flagstaff, which is not a huge town, sprawl, sprawl, sprawl. The clearing of the forest on just scale, thousands and thousands of acres just getting leveled for housing developments and roads. It is embarrassing that we are still doing this. There's no other word for it. It's embarrassing, short-sighted. I guess there is more than one word for it. Dumb would be a third one. Stupid would be interchangeable in that sense. Short-sighted is a really good one. We cannot keep doing this, and yet here we are. And so my point is I was going to tell people, if there's something in the West you want to see, go now. But I'm not going to say that because you can't go now. It's already gone. And, and it can't support you even if you wanted to go. Let's say that we wanted to go see the meteor crater in northern Arizona, which is outside of Flagstaff. You can't go because that exit had 40 semi-trucks pulled over at night and a line of cars parked all night long along the road. The campground overflowing. The, the roadside rest area two miles down the road, overflowing with trucks going miles parked along the edge of the I-40, the parking lot filled with people. So it's already done. So there has to be—we have to find ways, apparently, of enjoying where we live and getting a better understanding of exactly where we live because we cannot support the number of people we have now. And that is so glaringly apparent with one road trip through the West— I mean, where I grew up in Wyoming, I don't even, I can't, it's hard for me to even go back now. The main property that my father owned was 3,500 acres. And with all the leased land and stuff, it's about 10,000 acres. But the, the core initial purchase was about, oh, right about 4,000 acres. That's all 40-acre subdivided ranchitos now. That was sold off, subdivided, and built, and people built, idiots built like $10 million mansions on it. Thankfully, that one got hit by lightning and burned to the ground, um, which is just poetic justice. It's gone. I, I can't even go back there. I can't look at it. I don't want to know about it because it's, it's the dumbest thing we can possibly do. So don't go. Stay home and explore your own neighborhood. Talk to your neighbors. Maybe they're, maybe they're interesting. All right, point number eight. I got to give you an AG23 update. The second issue is being designed right now as we speak in Sydney by Zoe Sadakirsky. She sent me some a preliminary idea for design which is super cool. She's amazing. This this woman is it makes me nervous even saying her name because when she when you meet someone that's that talented and that cool that has done so much it makes me feel inferior. And so but at the same time I love working with her because I have 100% trust that whatever she comes up with is going to be so good and so beyond anything I'd be able to do that I'm going to be stoked, and that the contributors whose work is being designed are going to be stoked as well. And this is not something that we go out to the contributors and say, hey, are you okay with this design? Because if we did, we would never get to print because no one would be able to agree on everything. So we say, look, Zoe has total control. Look at her track record. Look at her work. And now, now you know why. So that's happening right now. I've got six people lined up for issue three, and they're so good. And I probably have three more that could maybe make it in there, but I want to try to keep the submissions in to around six, six people per so we have enough real estate. I have informally pledged to spend 25% of my time in 2021 to working on AG23. because Right now it's 5%. And believe, we pulled this off. We, we are now officially sold out of issue one. We pulled this off spending 5% of our time. I made a list of 21 things that happened in the first year of AG23. I'm going to do a, a film about this. What I've learned doing this, pro, this project, and then also the 21 things that we were able to pull off in year one, spending 5% of our time. So I had a long talk with Rick Elder, who's the director at Beyond, and I said, this demands more. Like this, the, the, the contributors, the designer, the idea, the people getting this, the society that we're building around this, everything. If we can build out micro grants, if we can build out the merch line, we can build out the marketing. When a COVID goes, we start building exhibitions and doing atypical things. It, it's going to demand 25% of my time. That's going to be hard, but it's worth it. It really is worth it. I, every time I look at it or I get an email from someone saying, hey, I got my hands on this. How do I be involved? Or explain to me how you did this. Or how do I get my work in there? Or how do I help promote this? Or can we start our own chapter here in wherever? That is so cool. And, the, and the, one of the best parts about it for me is it's not my work. My work is not in there. I don't care about having my work promoted. I just do not care. I would much, much, much prefer to promote your work because if you need it and want it and it helps you and you're thrilled, it's great. And yesterday I talked to three of the five contributors in the second issue. They reached out to me unsolicited and said, hey, curious update, where are we? And I just want you to know how excited I am to be a part of this. And the fact that you're promoting us is fantastic and atypical, and thank you. That is really fun. when When you're part of something that's bigger than you, that is doing something different, and you've got cool collaboration partners and you feel like you haven't even started yet and the first issue sold out and people are writing and saying, how do I get this? It's a really cool feeling. So I'm, I have good, good, good vibes going towards 2021. Okay, uh, point number nine is about Google Photos. So um, yes, I told you, uh, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so, Google Photos is no longer free. Gee, what a surprise. So they wait long enough to where people have Gazillions of of images on Google Google Photos, and then they go. By the way, this is no longer going to be free. We're going to start charging you. That you could see coming from outer space. Oh, by the way, those of you on Instagram, how about those new uh, those new user terms? Holy cow! Okay, we'll get to those on a on a subsequent podcast. But I had a couple of calls from people who were not too happy about the new user agreement on Instagram. Once again, told you so. Um, again, snowflakes want to believe that everything is 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 in perfect harmony in the world. But if you couldn't see these these new user agreements coming from Instagram, then you really weren't paying attention. They were bad to begin with. Now they're even worse. But Google Photos is gone. And so I was like, that's interesting. Archiving digital assets to me is one of the most interesting parts of the digital revolution and also the white elephant in the room. It's what no one wants to talk about. Because the solutions are not many and they're not good and they're expensive and they're time consuming and a logistical nightmare for those of people who are honest. And then there's everyone else who pretends that it's not a problem or you run into the photographers and the people who just throw everything away except for a handful of images from every shoot. And then they go, gee, it's no problem for me. And then you ask, you, you, if you ask one of those people, hey, we're going to build a book from some of your work, and you go back and you had five images from a shoot. Well, guess what? If you're a bookmaker, if you're anyone who's ever sold images from their archive, if you're a photographer who is living off image sales from your archive, which, by the way, is quite a few people, they're mostly in their 50s and 60s, and they're all better than you, and they're better than me, and they're legends, and they're living off of their archives now. That's how it works. It's called licensing, it's one of the most important things you can do as a photographer. Um, The young crowd doesn't seem to understand this, and so archiving is interesting. So Wired Magazine did an article about alternatives to Google Photos, and the reality is (laughs) I was stunned because I read the article thinking I would be able to get some good fodder to help people when they came to me and said, how do I archive? Every single one was prefaced by, this isn't really meant for photos, or this doesn't really work well, or, or this isn't perfect, but... You know, and you got to pay for this and you only get two gigs of storage or you get five gigs and the prices go up. And the, the truth was within 30 seconds of reading this article, I'm like, there is no solution. And by the way, Amazon got hit today with something. I don't know if it was a cyber attack or something, but none of these things are safe. All of the user agreements are horrible. They're not responsible for your work. And if they decide for it to go away, it goes away. And you're talking about ones and zeros. And ones and zeros have an underlying cracked foundation because they're ones and zeros and they can all go away. And what I told you initially about the power grid, about the hacking, it's coming, right? And so if you're, all your eggs are in that basket, so my only advice to you is to back, back it up, multi—you know do Backblaze B2, do Amazon Glacier, and do PhotoShelter Pro, do all of these different things at one time, and that's your best bet. It's not perfect, but I'm not sure what else to do. Okay, one little political thing here, which I think is hilarious, is um, when I saw the Cowboys for Trump on the thing, on the overpass, and I and I saw, I knew that uh, Roger Stone was the one that that copped the whole stop the steal thing, because that's what he does. He's a monumental a-hole, that, but he's good at what he's doing, right? He's, a, he's a, a stem winder, as my mom would say. He winds people up and spins them around, and they fly off the, the tracks at high speed, and then he goes and, and counts his money. And so The the Republican crazies out there are talking about stop the, you know, that the the Dems, there was voter fraud and that they were somehow able to masterfully steal the presidential election, right? That in itself would be a coup. Like if, if if the Democrats were actually able to do that, I would have to clap because that's not an easy thing. But, you know, the Republicans are like, look, there's widespread voter fraud. We don't have any evidence whatsoever. We have no proof and no evidence, but we're going to just claim this, right? Because Donnie Dipshit is the one pulling the strings on the puppets. But this is the crazy part to me. So you're telling me that the Dems rigged the presidential election. Wow, this sounds like like a Gerard Butler movie, right? White House down, Olympus down, Trump down, whatever. So the Democrats rigged the election. But they forgot to rig the Senate. And oh, by the way, they forgot to rig the House. So somehow they rigged the president, but then purposely shot themselves in the foot by not rigging the Senate. And then, just to make it, the smokescreen more complete, botch it in the House. And when I ask my Republican friends that, I get looks of absolute utter bewilderment. Because there doesn't seem to be the connection... That They're just fixated on the fact that somehow the Democrats, with their super stealthy, secret, smooth programming, stole the presidential election, but then forgot to steal the Senate and then accidentally botched the House. So riddle me that, Batman, how that was actually going to happen. I think it's hilarious. And by the way, most of the people that I talk to that claim this is what happened get their news from TikTok. 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 Now, not tic-tac. tic is the clear, high-proof alcohol from the movie Salvador with James Woods and Jim Belushi. And James Woods warns Jim Belushi, whose character's name is Dr. Rock, don't drink that stuff, man. You know, you're gonna end up in the in the street. And later in the film, you see Jim Belushi fighting a homeless guy for a bottle of Tic Tac. Not Tic Tac, TikTok. So they're getting their news from TikTok. That's not good. Um And the last point, I guess I am going to end with a political thing here, which I think is also simultaneously hilarious, which is, uh, if you've been watching this, and I don't have television, so I've just seen snippets of this online, Fox News obviously is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party, MSNBC is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party, and then everybody else is muddled in the middle like a game show with um, dysfunctional participants. So Fox obviously has been... Supporting Trump hardcore for four years with morons like Hannity and, and uh, Laura Ingram and, you know, uh, all these other folks. Well, Tucker Carlson, um, the funny part is when you radicalize a population, there it's not like there's a fuel governor on it where it gets to 30 miles an hour and it shuts down. No, when you start to radicalize, it's like a rocket that's got a certain amount of propellant. And you can't stop it halfway. It just burns and just explodes up into the orbit. So now the Fox audience is so radicalized, they're turning on the Fox network itself. They're turning on Tucker Carlson. They're turning on Laura Ingram. And to listen to them, these two talking heads, who did nothing for four years other than enable Trump to be the monster that he was, they are now literally having to go on and— proclaim disclaimers they're they're literally going on and saying please don't take this personally please don't shoot the messenger donald trump is going to lose the election he's not going to get another 4 years but but, 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 but it's not that i don't like him that is literally happening right now because the radicalized population on the right is looking for blood and they're turning on the master and it's, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I've never seen a talking head on a network look so terrified as Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram. to see them repeat over and over again. It's not me personally. It's not that I don't like Donald Trump. It's not this and that. It's please, please, please leave me alone, but I've got some really bad news for you. That is scary. I actually feel... I don't feel bad. No, I was going to say I feel bad for them. I don't. I don't feel bad at all. They knew exactly what they were doing. They deserve it. Um, But it's still crazy to see. And thankfully for those radicalized folks, there are networks out there that are even crazier than Fox. I know because my father used to listen to some of these. And um, man, talk about batshit crazy. And look, both sides have these, these folks, right? It's not just limited to the right side or the left side. It's everybody. So anyway, uh, that's it. It's dark now. My computer has still not arrived, but I got to check uh, the update to see if, I, see if this thing arrived. Uh, I'm going to freeze my peaches off when I walk out there to get it, but I need to get it before somebody else gets it. Know what I mean? So that's right about the hour, hour mark, and I think that's a good place to stop. That's for what it's worth, episode 44, and I appreciate you tuning in. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving, and um, again, my belt and pants are gone, and I'm going out to the mailbox without either one of them. Because that's how I roll. And uh, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. And uh, try to stay positive. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon.